Welcome to the Iowa Idea Podcast. Join host Matt Arnold for in-depth conversations with artists, designers, entrepreneurs, and civic leaders as he explores how they approach their craft and represent a modern version of the Iowa Idea. This podcast tells the stories of Iowa natives, transplants, and friends who demonstrate the Iowa Idea in the 21st century. No losses, only lessons. In this, the 100th episode of the Iowa Idea Podcast, I'm joined by Mohamed Traore. Mo works as a sales development representative for RoboFlow, a computer vision and artificial intelligence startup based in Des Moines, Iowa. He also works as a freelance web developer, hosts a financial education podcast, and serves as chair of the City of Iowa City's Truth and Reconciliation Commission. I believe this is a perfect conversation to serve as the 100th episode of the podcast as we cover issues of race, restorative justice, technology, innovation, persistence, and continuous improvement. Mohammed shares his journey, born in Brooklyn, New York in 1995 and moving to Iowa City, Iowa with his family in 1999 to spending time learning to code and leveraging time and resources at the Iowa City Public Library. We dig into the power of restorative justice, understanding other people's journeys and experiences, and explore a strategic doing approach to collaboration. I really appreciated the stories Mo shared with me. It was an honor having him on the show, and I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Mohammed, welcome to the Iowa Idea Podcast. Thanks so much for joining me. If you don't mind, uh, could you tell our guests a little bit about yourself? Uh, my name is Mohammed Shafulo Triori. I was born in Brooklyn, New York in July of 1995. My family is originally from Mali in West Africa. So my dad is from a mud hut village in Mali, and he was born in the 60s. And my dad, I mean, my mom was born on uh, 70s and yeah they both went through a lot when they're growing up and also you know first coming to this country so my dad started as a taxi driver in new york in in the 90s so time was pretty dangerous over there and you know him being so young in his mid-20s when he got here and um you know he doesn't talk a lot about his childhood and everything growing up but i can just tell as well from how kind of quiet he is about it that it likely was a bit traumatic and he did go through a lot. And when it came to him wanting to come to America, he always heard those things. So uh, it's not going to happen. Like you can't, you can't do that. You can't make it. But he always just kind of stood pat, stayed on the course and he always was the one to prove people wrong. And my mom as well. Uh, she actually kind of learned English by watching TV <laughs> all the time and uh, watching movies as well. And just wicked smart, picks things up very quickly. And she also just always instilled, you know, the importance of education in me. I remember um, my early grade school years, and also even in preschool, she would make sure to read to me like every night, make sure I would always not only finish my homework, but essentially have like every answer right. So I just always really valued learning 
because of that. That's great. Thanks. Uh, and, uh, so you were, you were fairly young when you moved to Iowa city, what, uh, get out of all the places that uh, your parents might move. Why Iowa city? Uh, they moved to Iowa city, just one for more opportunity two cheaper cost of living, but three as well. It was just something that, you know, with everything that was going on in New York in the nineties, you know, my, one of my sisters was born. So two kids at the time and, you know, murder rates being high and the lack of safety, it was just, okay, we want to make sure that our kids grow up in a place that they can not only get a good education, but that they can actually have a chance to continue growing up and we don't have to worry about them all the time. Because I remember, you know, we were there till I was about three, three and a half years old. And I don't really remember going outside very often. I'd be inside pretty much all the time, just out of, out of precaution. Yeah. And, uh, then you, when, uh, came to Iowa city to you, uh, I know you, you went to city high. Uh, so you're a, a little Hawk, right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I really enjoyed my time there. Uh, so worked pretty hard in high school. Uh, I took two math classes actually my freshman year because I just remember, so I started high school in 2009 and I remember very first day going into high school know being after the 2008 crash and everything and also just you know us being an immigrant family uh from a tough background my dad first day told me it's like you got your scholarship like you have to because i don't know that i have the means to you know pay for where you're gonna make it in college or where you're gonna go for college and so yeah i took two math classes geometry honors and algebra two honors at the same time and I got like A's, like the first two trimesters in both and like barely missed A's like the third trimester. But yeah, I've been running like cross country and track as well. I also played basketball my freshman year. Well, I was on the team. I didn't play yeah. Much, <laughs> right, right, right. yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. And uh, running track and cross country. I know folks wouldn't know it to look at me, but I, uh, I ran cross country in high school and, um, uh, not, not all four years. It was more because a lot of my friends were running cross country. I started out playing, uh, football or, or maybe, maybe it's similar to your, your basketball story. I was, I was on the team <laughs> and would see the field once in a while, but, uh, yeah, a lot of friends, uh, were running cross country. So it kind of like hung out with them. And I think it, it's, uh, of all the different sports that I've cross country is probably to me is still the most mentally demanding, uh, of the sports that I played. And, uh, I was just reflecting this morning about how some days it feels like you're almost gliding when you're out there. And then other days when it just feels like your legs are made out of lead and you're, you know, you got to plod through three miles, you know, 3.1 miles to make it happen. What was your biggest takeaway from cross country? Uh, a lot of what you said actually in terms of like mental toughness aspect, uh, it's like a sport where you're not going to make it through you're not mentally tough and it really instills that in you because, you know, running those five K's once a week, sometimes twice a week, uh, those 30, 40 mile, mile weeks, sometimes 50 mile weeks, depending on the level you're trying to get to the level you're trying to run at. And I just remember that, I mean, I went through a lot of injuries in high school. So that was just one thing I also had to, uh, really overcome, but my coaches just never gave up on me and just told me that I have a bright future in running and that I need to just 
not only continue with the sport, but truly begin to believe in myself and my abilities and also my teammates. And yeah, it just really gave me that sense of brotherhood for one and for two, just a lot more confidence and three, it really did help my track as well, which really helped me stay on track in school. Yeah. And also just to continue, you know, feeling like I can achieve my dreams. That's great. Uh, what, out of curiosity, what, uh, what events did you run in track? I ran the 400 hurdles and also the 800. Oh, that's, yeah, that's great. Uh, so want to uh, talk to you a little bit. There's so many different things that I do want to talk to you about uh, today. And uh, for, for folks listening, you know, we were able to meet through the Iowa uh, Breakfast Club, right, on Clubhouse. So just kind of inter- some new technologies coming out of COVID seems like a safe way to, to meet folks. And I've just appreciated uh, the conversations we had. And one of the things I wanted to talk about, uh, you know, a little bit more recently is uh, your involvement in the Truth and Reconciliation uh committee for for Iowa City do you mind talking a little bit about that what what that is and uh kind of the the goals and objectives of the committee yeah um so I'm the chair of the truth and reconciliation commission so I became chair in about mid-march and yeah it's definitely something that's difficult but I really welcome the challenge um I don't really like shying away from challenges and speaking for myself personally I I do think that the commission can really change a lot of things, not only in Iowa City, not only in the county, but also really be a catalyst for change within the state. For me, um, I feel that the whole idea behind the commission is not only helping to identify past issues, present issues, and possible future issues when it comes to policies that have been enacted or issues um, behind you know, events of racism or issues with police in education, healthcare disparities, and also housing disparities, sustainability, but also just to ensure that people truly take the time to realize that just because things may seem a certain way now, that that doesn't mean that that's how everyone sees it. Because I truly do believe that everyone sees the world differently. And because of that, we enact um, or we move differently as well. So one person thinking that things may be a-okay doesn't necessarily mean that they are. The best way to get to that is by having those tough conversations, by sharing our ideals, by sharing our viewpoints, by sharing our experiences, so that we truly can get to more of a consensus that we dub truth. And then the next piece is reconciliation. Because it's one thing to talk about what we believe the truth to be, but it's another thing to ensure that we reconcile the past differences and the present differences so that we can have a better future. Um, I'm not one to hold a grudge against people. Uh, so, you know, people can be mean to me or be outright racist to me or whatever it is. But uh, one thing my parents, especially my mom always instilled in me is that you have to have love for others and that you're never going to help people change if you completely turn them away or if you shut them down because then they never have the chance to listen to you again. If they never have the chance to listen to you, then they're not going to hear your side ever. And they're not going to have the ability to grow. So I see the Truth and Reconciliation Commission as a way to spread some more of that ideal and to 
uh, make sure that everyone truly does see that while we have come a long way, we do have further to go to ensure that we don't make any of the same mistakes from the past and that our kids also do have a bright future ahead of them. So the goals uh, by the mandate are fact-finding, truth-telling, and reconciliation. Thank you. That's really powerful stuff. And uh, just stepping back for a second, your your mom sounds like a wise powerhouse uh, from keep, keep you on track early reading to, uh, uh, you know, coming, coming to my life, obviously, you know, right. I'm, I'm in a very privileged position, right. <laughs> kind of white male in Iowa city. Uh, and so just hearing what you're saying, uh, I can't imagine like to your point, the strength of character on, uh, some of the things that, that may happen that you, you still want to play a long game, right? Like it's, that's what I'm here is, is how, how can we get there if we shut each other down immediately? Uh, so just, just want you to, that just sounded incredibly powerful. So thank you for the work you're doing. And, and uh, thanks to your, uh, your mom on those insights. When it comes to the commission, what's kind of been the biggest surprise for you, or maybe the biggest insight could be uh, either like either heartwarming or uh, maybe challenging, because I, I know when we dig into complex systems, right, there's a lot going on. Uh, and we'll we'll talk about some strategic doing stuff that we have in common. But I'm I'm really curious on maybe what have been some of the the most curious or insightful things that you found uh, through through your work with the commission. Uh, one thing I found is that I mean I came in knowing that it'd be a difficult task, but I don't believe I truly realized coming in how much work it truly would be, and almost feeling like another job in the sense of it's on your mind every day you're doing something for it certainly every day because it's something that not only affects you but affects everyone around you i mean when you look at just the iowa city area in itself um I'm including coralville most liberty in this just because the fact that essentially kind of the same community have well over a hundred thousand people so knowing that the policy recommendations we come up with and the decisions that we make, the votes that we take are going to affect each one of those 100,000 people plus in some way, shape or form. So I just truly see it as imperative that we do continue to do work on this commission every single day. And um, I guess as well, but the positive I see in that is that the eight other commission members alongside me are just some of the most amazing people that I've ever had the opportunity to meet. We have a lawyer on the commission. We also have a professor and we also have um, a uh, psychology specialist, multiple community advocates. And we have a formerly incarcerated individual in Eric Harris that is one of the most exceptional human beings that I've ever had the opportunity to meet and just his wisdom and coaching has been impressive and my vice chair Amel Ali I've known her since we we're about four or five years old and just seeing the growth that she's had since you know the time we we're four or five years old especially just in the last few years I'm just so proud of her as well and I learn from her essentially every day so uh, we have Sakaus Novis as well who's president of the Great Plains Action Society and the thing she does for the indigenous community her strength as well and her willpower is just sight to behold. And Cliff Johnson as well comes from the Philadelphia area. He is just another exceptional individual. And the fact that, you know, he has his own boxing gym and he really 
instills a lot of time and energy into the youth. And then there's Chastity Dillard as well, who's with Iowa Shelter House. And she is also just another impeccable individual in just everything that she does for the community and not just homeless individuals, but also, um, also just with minorities in the area. So I just truly see this entire commission as a body of individuals that come from different walks of life, but have so many different things to share and so many different things to provide. And then our, our city staff person, uh, Stephanie Bowers, she puts in so much work as well and is pretty much always available to answer questions and to offer guidance. And I'm just truly, truly grateful that we have her as a part of this. And then the Divided Community Project from Ohio State University, their national network as well. And then the coaching that they provide is honestly, you can't put a value on it. I've learned so much from them and everyone else that's collaborated with us and that's offered us advice and that's offered us assistance. I just can't thank them enough because it's, again, yeah, it's a lot a lot of time to put in and it's a lot of weight on your shoulders. But when you know that you have that support system, when you know that you have, you know, that extra backbone, it really gives you the mindset and, you know, just the idea that you truly can achieve what you're setting out to achieve. Thank you. Uh, I know I was reading an, an article uh, about, uh, about your appointment to the commission and uh, you had shared that, uh, one of your uh, your favorite quotes comes from Plato, and that it's uh, "I know that I know nothing." Uh, why is that uh, an important quote for you? Um, well, yeah, actually, actually, I think um, that we might have been a misprint in the article. Okay, actually, actually, actually from Socrates. But, All right, but it, yes, it, it, is, it is my favorite. Let's correct quote. the record. <laughs> yeah, um, I really like it just because of the humbleness in it and the tone. Yeah. Uh, Socrates. You know, as we all know, one of the greatest minds to ever to ever live. And he so essentially I just see it as no matter how much you get to know, no matter where you get to be in life, that you always have more to achieve and you always have more to know. And that to never underestimate the the gifts and the things that other people have to offer because you can and will learn something from every single person that you meet. Because again, as I said earlier, we, you know, we all have different ways that we view the world. So we all have different ways that we enact with it. We all have different, different things to offer. So if you overlook someone just because they come from a certain place or look a certain way or have a certain level of education, you're going to miss a learning opportunity. And every learning opportunity that you miss is a chance of growth that you do miss out on. So I just remind myself every day that all I know is that I know nothing. Yeah. Thanks. Yeah, I love it. I love your commitment to uh, continuous improvement. Uh, somewhat related, one of my favorite quotes is, uh, it was from uh, uh, James Joyce, the character Stephen Dedalus in Portrait of the Artist as a Young Man, said that he's read little and understands less. Right? And just, yeah, just thinking about all of the potential knowledge that is out there. It just, it's almost folly to think that we we know everything, right? And uh so I, I I really appreciate uh, your your thought and and thanks for correcting me too on uh, Socrates versus Plato. Uh, so when it comes to you know we were talking about this with the commission and also as you that we can learn from from all different people and different perspectives. You know I, I mentioned strategic doing and that's that's one of the things that that we have in common right is that we've both gone through the strategic doing 
kind of training and process. And I know part of that is, is how we deal with complex adaptive systems, right? And so one of the things I just wanted to share uh, that I just find really interesting is, as I've done more work in com- complex adaptive systems, I'm not sure, are you familiar with Jay Forrester's work from MIT on system dynamics? I've heard a little bit about it, but I'm not as familiar as I should be. So that's another situation where I yeah. need to read up a little more. Well, one, one of the things that Forrester said that that has stuck with me for a long time is uh, that we all have mental models, right? That that everybody has a mental model and it, it's rare that they're the same, right? And so like when you think about these collaborative processes, you know, part of that is getting everybody's mental models out on the table, right? And and I, I just think about the work that you're doing and think about like that the foundational elements of strategic doing, right? Is how do we have deep civil discourse, right? Where we respect each other to, to accomplish good things for the community. Uh, but if you don't mind, uh, could you share some of the things from your perspective on uh, what, what strategic doing meant for you and, and what you, what you get excited about when you think about uh, that type of collaboration? Yeah. Strategic doing for me um, meant a lot of different things for one. It, really helped reaffirm some of the ideals that I was taught growing up and that some of the skills I practiced, but as well, it just showed me again, that I do have so much more to learn. If, you know, I want to be an effective leader, if I want to be an effective communicator, if I want to be an effective collaborator, uh, just the entire workshop, you know, just learn something new pretty much every minute. And yeah, just looking to integrate that into what I do with the truth and reconciliation commission with what I do with my personal life, but also what I do with work. And I had the chance to go to the workshop uh, with one of my coworkers as well, Robert Huerta from VerbalFlow as well. And it was our first week on the job and they're like, hey, yeah, you guys should do that workshop together. And I find us using the skills work pretty much every single day. And us being a startup, you know, there's a lot of uh, responsibilities and different roles and areas of the company that we get to take on. But we're a company where everyone gets to pitch in on anything and everything that they'd like. And our superiors just really take our ideas uh, at face value and allow us to pretty much shape our roles and what we're going to do with the company in any way that we'd like. So having the ability to just collaborate on all of these things and catch up with each other in terms of, yeah, how do you feel that this process is going and how do you think we should change this? essentially, you know, that 30, 30, 30 aspect of it yep. and, you know, having that big easy and we've come up with a few big easies actually, and, uh, just really implementing those and just checking back in with each other of how we think it's going, but also with the truth and reconciliation commission as well, I find myself really using that. And, um, there are some like guiding questions that I kind of just like passed on to the commission in terms of asking everyone to think about those things so that, we can really have those mental models of how we see not only how we personally see success in the commission, but also what would make us happy at the end of it, because those are in a way two different things. Yeah. Yeah. Right. I mean, that I, I found that to be really powerful too, is talking to people about what does success look like? Like, you know, thinking about the future and, and also trying to understand what, what do individuals need out of this for it to be successful? So yeah, getting some of those like kind of 
kind of future facing uh, ideas out there as well. And from from the beginning with the civil, you know, good deep civil discourse to like good guiding questions and you know, kind of the appreciative framing. It is it's such a powerful tool. I just I'm excited that. Uh, and kudos to the team at RoboFlow that that was basically week one, and they're sending you to uh, strategic doing training. You, is it all right if we nerd out a little bit about RoboFlow? Yeah, 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 definitely. And oh, and for strategic doing, I want to thank Tom Banta for IOCD from IOC Area Development Group as well. He reached out to me about it uh, first and foremost. So Robert coming as well as you know, I already had it scheduled. So yeah. by the time I accepted the job, they were just like, oh well. Yeah, that'd be a great thing for you two to do together. Uh, yeah, that's great, and Tom's great too. Uh, yeah, actually, <laughs> maybe it's a cult. Tom, Tom got me into strategic doing as well, uh, but uh, can't thank him enough for it. Uh, so, RoboFlow, uh, you guys are doing some really cool work in a super interesting space. Do you mind describing to listeners what RoboFlow is is all about? Um, the way that I see it is RoboFlow is really about democratizing the space of computer vision and really being at the forefront of innovation in the sense of being that backbone to um, to all these different industries uh, across the world. Honestly, when it comes to healthcare and medicine or industrial automation and just uh, sustainability and energy systems and environmental monitoring, it's just the applications are pretty much as endless for computer vision. It's like, just think of what the human eyes see each and every day and how we analyze it personally and how we use that to make decisions. You're essentially creating these models and these neural nets and deep learning to ensure that this piece of technology rooted inside just a camera can essentially do the same things that we're looking to do while we're processing information, but not only do it faster, but do it more in a niche in a sense of it's trained to do these specific things, whereas the human mind and everything that we see, we're processing so many different things at once. There's so much that we miss. Whereas if you train this camera to do these specific things, you know, you get so much more insight and it makes it, the platform is just built in a way that, you know, you don't have to have a PhD in data science or, or, um, or stats and have all these years of experience in computers and computer programming I mean, you can, but you don't have to, to be successful on the platform. You know, there's, we have all this documentation, all these blog posts, all these YouTube videos as well, just to ensure that anyone that wants to get educated in the space and learn the skills truly has the ability to do so. So we're just looking to drive innovation in any field that you can think of and apply these tools in any way that you can think of, but not just to give you know, current industries and current people working in these industries, the ability to work with these tools, but the everyday developer or the student uh, that is also looking to pick up these skills. And we have people of just so many different age groups on there. Like we've had 16, 17 year olds thriving on the platform and creating products and services or, or just, um, just little personal projects all the way up to people, you know, that of the, boomer generation uh that as you as you call it that are yeah. becoming successful on the platform as well it's just built in a way that is so intuitive for anyone and everyone and it's just truly visionary design and we hear from our users and customers every day about how 
well the product is designed, about how easy it is to navigate the platform, and how it's truly changed not only how they see the world, but how they see innovation and how they just see the savings in terms of cost, but also how it can truly change the way that the world is moving forward. Because we see so much of a slowdown in innovation in some ways. And I feel that the main reason behind it is that people, like we have these tools, but the inaccessibility of them is such a barrier. So if you can just open that up to more and more and more people through having a more no code or low code platform, then you make it so that just the average person can pick it up and can do just exceptional things. So just to make sure I'm tracking on, on kind of what you're saying, what I'm hearing is basically if we democratize it, right, we're reducing barriers to entry and then you can, you can see how different people are using kind of, uh, uh, machine learning through through camera, what what that can do, the way they apply it to their like here's a problem they have that we might not even have thought of, or here here's a, a unique application. But by reducing those barriers and putting those tools in people's hands, all of a sudden you can start to see innovation flourish because it's not for a select few or it's not focused on one particular problem, right? It's more how can they get this this tool to help them accomplish their goals. Am, am I kind of on track there? Is that making sense? Yeah. Yeah. Cause just as I said earlier about how uh, everyone sees the world in different ways, yep. the process information differently because of that, we all have different ideas and we all apply them in different ways. So if you give more and more and more people access to a tool, to a technology, then you have more routes to innovation and yeah, just when it comes to all these applications, you know, you can do things such as uh, finding ways to make transportation more sustainable in the sense of finding better routing for how you're placing uh, transportation lines or doing things such as pill sorting or finding defects in real time on your production line or when it comes to, you know, retail and e-commerce brand recognition or recognition of, uh, you know, a certain type of shoe or certain clothing so that you could easily search it from there or find, or if you're a marketer, find out, you know, what everyone's wearing or where, where trends are going towards that you're ahead of the game. Or even when it comes to things as simple as, you know, detecting sign language so that someone could more easily learn it by pointing a camera at someone. Uh, that you train, you know, training a model to know sign language that you could point your camera at someone, you know, signing and see in real time what they're actually saying and conveying. Yeah, th- for me, those get really exciting, right? The, those stories, uh, especially on uh, tech in general, where where we can uh, basically reduce the barriers of accessibility, right? And and so I, I hadn't even thought about like a sign language kind of uh, uh, application to this, but yeah, that, I mean, that just sounds, uh, for lack of better term, sounds really heartwarming too, to think about different ways that, that you can reduce barriers for folks to, to live their best life. Right. Uh, when, when thinking about, so the work that is going on at RoboFlow, right. It's, it's super high tech, right. It's like all of these different, like, you know, from like kind of, you know, when, and I might be conflating some things, but when we think about machine learning, we think about augmented reality, we think about artificial intelligence, you're working in such a really cool space, backing up, kind of just thinking about your journey. I know we talked about, you know, parents and coaches being drivers for continuous improvement, but how did you get interested in kind of cutting edge tech? Uh, well, 
I'd always really been interested in technology. Um, you know, I was playing video games as a kid, but more so in terms of computers. So I'm in that middle age of like right at the end of millennial generation, but uh, right before, you know, Gen Z starting. So I still remember when floppy disks were a thing. I still remember dial up internet and, you know, having dial up internet. So um, I remember having, you know, those fights with family on like, hey, I'm on the phone, like you need to get off the computer or, and, or them being on the phone for so long. And me asking or somebody them to picking get, up the phone uh, and so I can get on the computer. Right. <laughs> yeah. So our workaround around that was, you know, dropping me off on the weekends with a friend at the Iowa City Public Library. And, uh, you know, spend all that time on the computer, just, you know, searching for things. Uh, so that just really taught me to be inquisitive and going around the library and searching for different books. And, you know, when it comes to the tech space as well, I remember picking up a book in like fourth or fifth grade on like HTML, CSS. So I'm kind of like, it's built like this little website, uh, at my house on my own at that age. And I remember as well, you know, still having the floppy disks at the time, saving the website on the floppy disk, saving the different files on them as well. And yeah, just like also just, um, I've really always been in a sci-fi as well. So seeing all these different technologies in those shows just always really just made me believe in innovation. And when it came to actually getting into this field, so the pandemic was a big driver for it actually. So about eight or nine months prior to the pandemic, I'd really gotten into the self-learning mode of computer programming. And after doing some time with web development, I decided, you know, about a few weeks before the shutdowns, hey, I want to build websites for people. And then the pandemic really opened that opportunity even more because all these businesses, you know, service storefronts not having them available or it being hard to market your services when you can't see people eye to eye. So having a website, having that digital presence, especially when everyone is sitting at home, is really a great thing to have. So, you know, I wasn't an expert in it or anything, but I told myself if I wait until I'm an expert, it's going to be too late. And, you know, I have to practice if I'm ever going to become good. So I started out doing websites at just really, really low rates, you know, telling, telling people, you know, I don't know anything and everything about this space, but uh, I'm going to do it for you for a low rate just to ensure that you at least get a product that's representative of the price. So a great friend of mine, Aaron Robinson, owns Ammo Pet Care. It's a, a dog business, dog training and a services business here in the Iowa City area. So the first website I made was for him and just the growth that that business has had over the last year. I mean, I obviously don't attribute it all to myself because he's just such a hard worker and has put so much time and effort into it, but he now has his own property as well. It's about almost a two acre property and just has so many dogs that he takes care of and seeing all the videos, the training, and also just his growth as well. Because I also found that I had a hard, hard time just letting go of that person that I was making the website for and making it so much more of an effort. It's like, all right, well, I want to tell you more about, you know, these social media algorithms. So you kind of learn like when it's best to post. So you also know more about the graphic design element of these are the type of things you want in posts, or these are the things that catch people's eye so that they can develop their skills as well. That's, and then, that, yeah, that's great. Um, so so yeah, just and just going back to like um, like you were talking about like you know uh, floppy disks, right? And uh, I was just talking to somebody recently about a uh, I think the first time I coded in HTML, it was something that I had to save down to a SyQuest cartridge, which was like a forty four meg uh, cartridge. Uh, 
but you know, just thinking about like, and yeah, so because I, I, you know, as you said, I could almost hear my my phone modem as you said that, and just thinking about you know all of those barriers that don't exist now, right? Like uh, like cloud computing, saving things, the the individual power on on computers, or um, also the power of tutorials on YouTube, right? That like, here's how somebody did something or just Google, like, you know, we, we used to refer to it as Google engineering is like, if you're stuck, you probably could Google it and you're going to find different people that have had similar problems and, and how they might approach it. Uh, yeah. It's, it's uh, such a, <laughs> it's, it's funny how it keeps evolving. And then sometimes how some of the same problems still persist. Uh, some of those still just being human collaboration. Yeah. When you were talking exactly. about the tech though, uh, I don't know if you know this. This is just a little uh, bit on, back, going back to strategic doing. Did you know that uh, open source uh, computing was uh, uh, Ed Morrison's kind of uh, insight into strategic doing? Is so that even though it's humans, it, it's modeled on open source computing. And in the open source world, you can't tell programmers what to do, right? It's like people sharing their gifts, uh, but you can't tell anybody specifically what to do. So I just, I find it really interesting that uh, both your, your, your tech and human collaborations do come, come to, they share a lot in common with kind of open source movements, right. And, and how we can, can bring those together. I don't know if, if, uh, yeah. if that seems uh, like something you you've seen. So this is just me from the outside. It seems like those are both really like, how do, how do we positively move open network seems to be a big driver for you, both technically and, and on the humanity side. Yeah, I highly agree. That's why I'm glad you said the Google engineering side. It's, it's like, that's also really the reason I found the computer space. I remember seeing this article talking about, you know, the, the coming, you know, next industrial revolution. And it talked about how computer programming, artificial intelligence, computer vision would be at the forefront of it. And it's about two years ago now that I saw that. And ever since then, I just became so interested in this space of, you know, being like, all right, I don't want to be behind. I want to be moving right along with it. So just started picking up those skills slowly, just knowing that I don't know when it'll be, but at some point I'm going to have an opportunity to break into this space. So, you know, practicing all those skills with the web design and also just the graphic design. And that helped me land a job with Amazon Logistics back in November. And then from there, uh, working there. So everything I was doing with the commission, friend uh, Liz Hubing, known her since junior high, just with Iowa City Area Development Group. She told me about the Iowa, Iowa Startup, uh, you know, Breakfast Club and on Clubhouse. So like, all right, I'm, I can do these. So yeah. I started going to the meetings and then uh, herself and Ben and Curdy just really pushed me to do their Techstar Startup Weekend. I decided, all right, sure, uh, why not? And I did it. And Maurice Davis, I was part of his team. And I just found that I was just absolutely in love with the process. Like the first night I think I went to bed at like two in the morning and I woke back up at like six and uh, that's something for me. It's get up early, go to bed pretty late. <laughs> I you know take the naps and everything during the day, but I just have a hard time putting things down. And uh, Kaylee Williams, the head of customer development for RoboFlow, she was one of the mentors for the event. And I had a like one-on-one -on -one meeting with her at one point and we're talking about um, an AI problem that we were trying to implement into our actual uh, startup idea for a startup weekend. And I was telling her about how it's like, all right, well, this could maybe be done, but not something that could become like an MVP this weekend, like a, like a minimum viable product. And uh, she was like, and I was just explaining to her like the issues with it. 
and what we would need to succeed with it. And she just kind of asked me point blank. It's like, how did you come to learn all of this? I was like, Google and YouTube. <laughs> <laughs> and I was, she was pretty impressed and just kind of just cryptically was like, well, we're hiring for this role right now at our company. If you know anyone that's interested, you know, have them email me and, you know, being off a little sleep and kind of just focus on the competition. I didn't really catch it at first, but then I remember later in the day, I was like, I think she was telling me to apply. <laughs> and, uh, hey, wait a minute. <laughs> yeah. So I emailed her and she asked me if I'd be available the following week for an interview and had an interview that Monday, the second one on Tuesday with herself and our CEO, Joseph Nelson. And then that Friday, uh, I got the offer. And remember, I literally went like weak in the knees when they told me because I was just so, so happy. And you know, just having to be that multi-year journey and all that hard work being put in and having to come, come full circle is just amazing. And I just loved being on the team and we're just so tight knit and we all support each other each and every day. And I just don't see myself leaving because, yeah. you know, I love everything that I do. That is, I, I love the story. So I want to back up and just think about, okay, so we, we got uh, got a young Mohammed going down to the library to try to make sure that he can get some decent internet connection. Could you imagine like, you know, in the future, one of the things you're going to be doing is is working in a space where uh, we're, we're using computer vision and and thinking about AI. Uh, it to, to me, it sounds like kind of like a dream come true, but almost also like maybe not even being able to to see what that technology might be when you're like 10, 11 years old. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And, you know, I don't know exactly where it goes two, three, five, 10, 20 years from now, but I do know it has a bright future. And while I may not be a part of every innovation, I'm at least proud to be a part of a company that's looking to push that, this space forward. Is even if I don't live to see how much uh, the technology can truly push the world forward, I'm just so happy for the individuals that do get the opportunity to see it and all the advancements that come from it. As for me, you know, it's not about uh, not about essentially all that I personally accomplish, but the tools and resources provided to help others accomplish what they're really looking for. It's like one of my biggest heroes. S&P's Kobe Bryant. It's uh, always said, use your success, wealth, and influence to put them in the best position to realize their dreams and find their true purpose. So those are words I really live by as well. And being a part of this company just really allows me to truly, truly put those words and that focus at the forefront each and every day. Thank you. That's great. One uh, of one of I know one of the topics that we we've talked about a little bit uh, in the past too is the notion of restorative justice. And I've had a few guests on the podcast too where that that's been a it's been a big important part of their life. Um, and just thinking about as humans, how do we become our best selves? And do you mind just talking a little bit about the 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 importance of restorative justice for communities just to be better healthier places yeah yeah um so when it comes to restorative justice aspect um so a lot of people don't know this uh but actually i spent half of 2019 behind bars and it's due to just some terrible mistakes that i personally made some bad decisions that i would made and the thing is the average person you know if they were to only know that about me you know, people just think that you're just such a bad person, but 
that's again why I just really talk about getting to know people and really giving them a chance and an opportunity because I feel like I can't just say these things, but I truly have to live by them. Um, and I met so many great individuals in there, which is really what people wouldn't expect to hear. Um, you know, people think just because someone looks a certain way or has had a certain background that they're just absolutely terrible. But what I truly found, like, you know, even with the, all the gangs in there between like white supremacist gangs and, uh, uh, you know, Bloods, Crips, things like that, that uh, it's really people that weren't truly given a chance. And I knew individuals that has been in institutions on and off since the time they were seven, eight years old. And that had been, you know, beaten all the time when they were kids and just neglected consistently, given up on, given up on by their parents or abused sexually. And it's almost like you look at them and it, it sucks to say, but it's literally like you literally never were given a chance. And I was watching these people coming in and essentially detoxing off heroin and other hard drugs. And you just ask them, like, how did you get here? 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 Just over and over and over and over and over. Just terrible stories of just pain. And just a restorative aspect of, I just never really saw for many of these individuals, especially so many of them having nonviolent crimes, the restorative nature of them being in these institutional treatment programs, especially I remember when first getting in there, the first set of words that I'd read was, it's etched into the brick wall. You take a man away from the things that he loves, he begins to lose all hope. And I just saw so many individuals that had lost hope because so many people had given up on them and so many people left them behind. So when it just came down to it, it was, all right, like I need to do everything that I can when I get out of here to make sure the people I know around me don't end up in these same situations. And I remember them telling me on my way out that you know, we never want to see you in here again. You don't belong in this place. It's like some of them tell me, you know, it's like if you ever end up in here again, like I'm going to beat you up. I'm going to make sure, you know, you check in a solitary because you, you should not be here. And uh, just them telling me, it's like, hey, now, now you know our stories, just be sure to not forget about us and, you know, show others, you know, that we're human too. And I remember telling them, uh, you know, my cohort in the institutional treatment program that I was in in prison was a story of value that I'd heard that was about this father that uh, him and his son had roamed the world collecting art, some of the most valuable art in the world. And the father's, his son had gone off to war. And unfortunately in the war, his son had died. And one of the servicemen that had been with his son came back to tell the father about it. And the father broke down in tears. And a few short years later, when the father died, there was this huge auction and all the pieces of art that had been around um, in the home were put up for auction. But actually, the serviceman had also given the father this painting that his son had made. And this painting, you know, the son wasn't a professional artist or anything, but the father had decided in his will to make sure that it was also up for auction. And all these rich people had gathered around, just so excited to get all of these precious artifacts. And then the auction begins. 
and the first item up for sale is the painting that the son had made. So the guy running the auction, when he tells everyone this, they're all surprised. It's like, what, this thing? Like, are we serious? Like, you're wasting our time. He's like, that's what it says in the will. That's what we got to do. So this painting by the sun goes up for auction and the price keeps dropping and dropping and dropping. So no one just really wants to bid on it. And price pretty much hits rock bottom. And suddenly the guy stands up and says, you know what? I'll buy the painting. I knew the boy. I knew his father. So he gets the painting. And then all of a sudden, the guy running the auction says, all right, auction's over. Everyone's like, whoa, 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 wait, 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 wait. What do you mean it's over? It's like, it's done. How? Well, in the will, the rules of the auction were, whoever bought the painting made by the boy gets everything. And they didn't understand why. And he told them, because that's, a, that's truly the most valuable painting out of the whole collection. So it just goes to show that value is subjective. Whoever truly values something the most, you know, it doesn't matter what someone else thinks of it, but as long as you truly value it, then that's what matters. So I guess it was something that, I don't know. And then there was a second story as well that I told them about, uh, that I read while I was in there, you know, when you do time, you got nothing but time. So I read a lot. This other story that was essentially, all right. So you go to a funeral and you know, everyone you know is going to be there. And three people are giving eulogies. Someone you loved in the past, a family member of yours, and one of your best friends. So when you finally get up to the coffin, you look down and you see yourself. If you knew that three years from now, it would be you in that coffin. What would you do to ensure that those eulogies given by those people would be truly representative of how you see yourself? So after finishing telling those two stories on my last day, it's like when I tell you, it's like a room of grown men that people try to call heartless, that people would say that they have no chance to ever heal, to ever become better. So many of them crying and so many of them just looking at me with their jaws dropped. A few of them have kind of come up to me after, hugged me and told me, I wish I'd met you earlier in my life. Because had I, I may never be here anymore. I may have never been here in the first place. And it just proved to me right then and there that they were failed when they were growing up and that they deserve better and that they deserve another chance. This, they were never taught they were just told and when that restorative justice piece I just see restorative justice in that sense of that truth that true reconciliation that it's not enough to just send someone away and think they're gonna, going to become better as you're just telling them that that's what they have to do but you truly have to teach them as well you have to teach them that they are redeemable you have to teach them that they are worth it to teach them that they are worthwhile. You have to give them that support. Muhammad, thank you so much. Those are powerful stories. I really appreciate you sharing those. And I, one of the other things that I, I was wondering about or thinking about like on the restorative justice side is also on, you know, cause one of the things we've talked about is when some, once somebody's out, 
right? They've already mm-hmm. done their time, right? But there's still a stigma that a lot of society has. And so that I'm, I'm just kind of curious on what ways uh, as a society we, and I don't even have good words for it, but how might we be more equitable, right? Because I, if somebody's out, they've done their time, right? The transaction's over. But, you know, but what what we hear about, because one of the stories you and I had discussed was through Entree Fest, right, was was uh, 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 Marcus from uh, Flick Shop, right? And he talked about how he couldn't get a job because he had a felony conviction, right? And then he the the loophole for him was it was have you had you have you had a felony conviction in the past seven years and he had been in prison for eight. So, nope, he was able to, like, get that job. And I'm just kind of curious to and and. Uh, not necessarily asking to speak for Eric, but right, like people that you know, your how can we be better at society at just saying, okay, if somebody's done done the time, right? How 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 do we better get what all humans want, right? At the end of the day, rather than something to me that feels like I don't know, it feels like people are still trying to be punitive well after the fact, and I don't even know if I'm making sense here, but I I do feel like. Uh, uh, there's a prison sentence so that that to me for lack of better terms it doesn't sound very human but that was that's part of the bargain so when that's over how can somebody get back into and be welcomed into community or at least being taught being loved you know like because we all want a better community i think we some of us just have a more punitive way of how we're going to get there i don't know if i'm making any sense i think you are i think that people need to remember that I think it's time we all took a hard look at ourselves in the mirror and realized that we don't truly live by our values and that when we say we value certain things, that it doesn't match up because, you know, our values are influenced by our habits and then those in turn influence our behaviors, which then in turn influence our trajectory. So if we say we value one thing, then we don't actually act in those ways. Then we need to change our habits. We need to change our behaviors, but that's not possible unless we take a hard look at what our values truly are. So, you know, we say one nation under God, we talk about this and that and how we need to prioritize these certain things about this is how the way we want to live about how you shouldn't judge someone for the mistakes of their ancestors um you, you know it's like that keeps coming up with you know the talk of systemic racism but at the same time we judge people based off the fact that they weren't given the tools to succeed and that you know the mistakes of their ancestors or their forefathers and that it lands them in a bad spot and they weren't really ever given a chance so we need to remember that if we want to think certain ways for certain topics we need to extend that to more things otherwise those aren't our true values so, yeah, I just think we really all need to take a hard look in the mirror and realize that it's not just treat people the way that you'd like to be treated, but treat people the way that they want to be treated. So no one wants to be treated like they're irredeemable. No one wants to be treated like they're worth nothing. And to feel like that's the way we truly move forward. That's the way we truly support each other. Thank you. Kind of one last thing before we go, I, and and uh, just I because I I do like to touch in with uh, touch base with guests too on the notion of advice, 
and it takes different forms. Sometimes I steal from Austin Kleon's book, Steal Like an Artist. Sometimes when we give advice, we're just talking to our younger self. Other times it might be something we heard from a wise mentor, but usually we're we're a little too young and cocky to it just sounds like they're saying something crazy. And then you realize as you get older that there was a lot of wisdom packed into what they were sharing. But uh, either or both, any any uh, advice you wish you would have had earlier or good advice that you've received that sticks with you? Great advice I received that sticks with me is to be where your feet are in the sense of you might not be today where you want to be or where you think you should be. But if you spend so much time envying other people or thinking too much about where you want to go and not enough time thinking about how you're going to forge that path to get there, then you're setting yourself up for failure. So one of my favorite things to say is if I want it, I need it. If I need it, I got it. And that it, I might not get it today. I might not get it tomorrow. I might not get it for three years, five years, 10, 20 years. But I always tell myself that I'm going to get it. So I believe in that power of intention. I believe in focusing on those things that I want to achieve. And that's going to help me get there. Because I can't just keep moving without intentionally thinking about the path that I'm going to forge to get to where I want to be. So you have to set those goals, but you also have to be willing to do those little things each and every day to make sure that you get there, that not let the mistakes of yesterday affect today to ultimately affect tomorrow, because then you lost. And the way to not lose is to take those mistakes as lessons. No losses, only lessons. If you learn from them, then you become better, better because of it. And that you can actually achieve and reach your goals. I love it, Mohammed. Thank you so much for taking the time to join me on the podcast. It's been an absolute uh, pleasure and uh, appreciate all that you've shared. And I'm so excited for uh, what you're doing with the, with the commission and, and also what the RoboFlow team is doing on an innovation front. So I, I really thank you so much. It was an honor having you here on the show. Thank you so, so much as well. I truly enjoyed the experience. 